Career Curves is pleased to have Groove, maker of the Career Clarity Toolkit, as our sponsor. Are you feeling stuck or trying to figure out what's next in your career? The Career Clarity Toolkit uses design thinking, guided reflection, and career experiments to give you confidence. Go to careercurves.com groove to get started. As a special promotion for Career Curves listeners, use the discount code CURVES to receive 10% off your first order. Welcome to Career Curves, where we talk to people who have interesting careers and explore how they got where they are. I'm your host, Beth Davies. It's the holiday season, and like in past years, we see this as the perfect time to feature the career journey of someone making a difference in the lives of others through work in the nonprofit sector. Our guest is Adrian Armstrong, Chief Executive Officer at Juma Ventures, a nonprofit social enterprise that operates businesses with the purpose of employing young people. Juma's mission is to break the cycle of poverty by paving the way to work, education, and financial capability for youth across America. Adrian has three degrees from Stanford, including a master's and an MBA. Many people with a Stanford MBA get involved in high-tech startups, yet Adrian has chosen the nonprofit sector. She's deeply committed to this space, having grown from an unpaid volunteer to her current role as a CEO. I'm thrilled to have Adrian here to tell us her story, including how she got interested in this work and how she's navigated her career to get where she is today. Adrian, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I want to get started with the present and where you are today, what you're doing today, and then we're going to go back in time and find out how you got here. So let's start by talking about Juma Ventures and what exactly does Juma Ventures do? As you mentioned, Juma is a nonprofit social enterprise, and we operate businesses with the purpose of employing young people. We make sure they earn a paycheck, learn how to manage their money, and gain essential skills like personal responsibility and how to communicate in the workplace. Ultimately, we connect them to their next job and we set them on a path to their career. Most people in the Bay Area know Juma through Giants games. So if you've been to a Giants game and you've bought coffee or ice cream in the past 27 years, you've actually bought it from a Juma youth. The businesses that we operate are at sports entertainment venues and operating in six cities in more than 20 venues, we're able to employ nearly a thousand young people every year. That's unbelievable. It also means, because I can put two and two together, we're sitting here in COVID and you're talking about sports arenas. So this pandemic has to have hit you hard. How have you adjusted for COVID in the pandemic? It was pretty much devastating when the sports leagues suspended their seasons and all of the stadiums closed. But our team is very resilient and our youth are incredible. So we very quickly pivoted and brought our programming online. We had an astounding 92% of our youth stay engaged with us every week through this summer and continue in their professional development through workshops, small group meetings, one-on-one coaching. And we've been able to get some youth back to work slowly but surely. We also really counted on the support Um, of our community to help fundraise for youth stipends. We were able to support youth through this time financially because they weren't able to earn the paycheck that they otherwise would have been earning in the stadium. Over the weekend, so I think maybe a day or two ago, I saw an email that you had a new venture. um, And actually, why don't I just let you tell us what what that is? (laughs) Tell tell us about the email that I saw. (laughs) 
So when the stadiums closed, one of the things the team did was quickly got together into a task force to try to figure out what are new business opportunities that we could be exploring to help youth get back to work. And so one of the business ideas that we landed on this fall is to curate holiday gift boxes. And so we are ordering products from socially responsible companies like B Corps and minority-owned businesses, um, small businesses. And we are employing young people to assemble gift boxes for the holiday season. We're really excited about this idea. And if it gets any legs, we will definitely be expanding it next year. So it's super impressive because it could be easy to say that You employ people at stadiums, but you really went back to your mission and said, no, our mission is to employ youth. And if we can't do it by our usual way, then we're going to still figure out a new way to do that because that's the mission. The mission isn't about ballparks. The mission is about employing youth. That's exactly right. The number one goal that we were looking at in deciding to pursue this new microventure is how many hours of work would we be able to provide to our youth? So we are probably not going to make much money off of this venture, but we will be able to provide up to 450 hours of work for our young people, which is approximately the same as a football season, which they're currently missing out on. That's fantastic. So now you're the CEO of the organization. What does it mean to be a CEO of a nonprofit? So what do you do in this role? Most of my time is spent in meetings. About half of that is with external people, and about half of that would be internal. Externally, I meet with funders a lot. I meet with strategic partners, folks at the teams uh, where we're running our businesses, Um, And then internally, leading the organization um, by example, making sure that I'm fulfilling our values, um, making sure that I'm encouraging folks and helping them develop um, things that a normal CEO would do. I think sometimes people think that CEOs are always about the for-profit business. Is the role different, do you think, in a nonprofit CEO as a for-profit CEO? And if so, how different are these roles? So technically, I've ever never actually worked at a for-profit company, so I'm guessing a little bit. Um, but I do think that there's a lot about the nonprofit environment that requires a lot of empathy and a lot of interpersonal skills. So almost by definition, we are working with people who are drawn to the work because they really want to make a difference. They have a passion. There's emotion behind why they're working here. And so that can create different dynamics. That is probably true at any nonprofit. And then I think it becomes particularly acute when you are at a direct service organization Because the decisions that you make every day and what you do with your time and and the work that you're putting in has real implications on people's lives. You just mentioned that you've never worked at in a for-profit business. So clearly, this is a passion for you. Where do you think this passion to be impacting lives the way you are, where do you think this passion came from? What are the origins? I have dedicated my career to serving underserved communities and the pursuit of social justice. And I think that this goes back to my own childhood, growing up, feeling, and being very different. I grew up in Santa Barbara, which is quite segregated um, in the neighborhoods and the schools. And in my childhood, in most situations, I was the only person of color in a room. 
in high school, I was the only student of color in my AP classes, and our classes were held in the main hallway of this beautiful historic school building. And the classes um, where most of the Latino students were, were literally in the basement. So it was very clear from a young age that uh, not only were we physically separated, but we had different access to resources and opportunities. And so I think it was this early awareness that really laid the foundation um, for my career and wanting to pursue um, equity and justice. Did you have any other early influences? So as long as I can remember, I have been involved in community service. Um, That was something that was ingrained in me from an early age with my family. When I was six, I walked precincts campaigning for Dukakis with my dad. And I think I was only eight or nine when I started volunteering with my mom for a local arts organization. So from a very young age, I um, was always involved in community service, and it's always been part of my identity. Tell me a little bit about your parents and your and your family growing up. What kind of work did they do? What kind of modeling did you see in the home? My dad was actually an attorney growing up, but he hated being a lawyer. Uh, my mom stayed at home when I was when I was a child, um, and I remember going with her to visit him during lunches, and he would be in his suit, and he was just miserable. Um, So he actually uh, exited the workforce for a bit um, when I was nine or 10, and he went on his own journey um, to find his passion, and he actually became a high school teacher. Um, So I'm actually quite proud that my dad is um, an ex-attorney turned high school teacher, and I think that um, while I have pursued my own interests in community and education, he laid a great foundation for pursuing that passion. I love that. I love that. Yeah, because he really showed you the difference between what it's like if you're doing work that's just work or if you're doing work that is a passion. So you mentioned that you'd done political canvassing as a very as a very young child. Did you actually also have any jobs as a as a teenager that again, helped to shape and influence who you are today? My very first job was as a barista at the Coffee Cat. So um, so I worked at a coffee shop, um, which is actually the same job that a lot of Juma youth do, is um, being a barista. Um, the Coffee Cat was a couple blocks from my house and, and from my high school, and it's a place where my friends and I went every day after school. I would go there with my dad on the weekends. And so when I started to think about getting a job when I was turning 15 or so, I wanted to start earning my own money. I thought that that would be a really fun place to work. And I actually remember the day that I walked in um, to the coffee cat with my dad and I was trying to muster up the courage to ask the manager if they were hiring And I was so shy and um, I couldn't get the words out. And so my dad actually just swept in and asked for me. And the manager happened to be a family friend. So he basically on the spot said, yes, I could work there. I actually think about that moment a lot at Juma. Why is that? Because... The the job that I ended up with is the same job that Juma youth do, 
But if Juma youth don't have coffee, sh- coffee shops in their neighborhoods, if Juma youth don't have dads around that go with them to those coffee shops, and if Juma youth don't have dads that go with them to the local coffee shop and happen to be friends with the manager, I don't know how they get their job. I don't know how I would have gotten my first job. And so... Juma is really able to provide an opportunity that a young person may not otherwise have access to. You know, it's interesting because we hear a lot about the importance of mentors in our careers. And no doubt mentors can have a high value. But there's also a tremendous value of advocates, which is really in many ways what your father did for you at that point. Somebody who's going to step up and say, here's somebody that you should consider. Absolutely. And and I think that being an advocate for us at Juma, it's not just about playing that role when that young person um, needs that support, but it's also making sure that um, they ultimately know how to advocate for themselves because Juma youth are only going to work with us for one sports season. And we want to make sure that they are able to advocate for themselves and progress in their careers far and beyond their time with Juma. So at some point, High school was going to come to an end. Your time at as a barista probably was also coming to an end, and you're heading off to college. What kind of plans were you making for yourself around maybe what you wanted to be, what you wanted to study as you were heading off to college? When I was first heading off to college, I think I wanted to be a psychologist. I really enjoyed talking to people. I enjoyed understanding um, what other people thought Uh, understanding other people's perspectives. Um, Of course, when I got to college and I took a couple of undergrad psych classes, um, I realized that the degree was going to be more about research. And so I I ended up pivoting away from that as a career, Um, although I did still go on to to get a master's in social psychology, um, specifically studying the experience of uh, students of color in education settings. And so what did you end up majoring in then instead of psychology? I ended up majoring in comparative studies in race and ethnicity. Um, I got the advice when I was going to college to study what you love, study what's interesting to you. And I'd first been exposed to ethnic studies in high school through an African-American studies class, which I um, was really grateful for. And then when I got to college, by my sophomore year, I realized that I was finishing my ethnic studies books before the quarter even started. So that was a pretty good sign that I should probably just keep studying that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Like there's a passion here if you're diving into the books that fast and that deep. Exactly. And and part of it too was um, it was an opportunity to really explore my own identity and to delve further into the experience of people of color in this country. Um, experiences beyond what I had, um, you know, witnessed firsthand. So you chose a major that was just what interested you. There's a lot of pressure that I see on college kids today to think about college almost as job training and to really think about what the job is that they're going to get. Did you feel any of that? Did you struggle with any of that of what am I actually going to do with this degree? And how, what were you, what kind of plan were you making based on that? I did have a sense that I wanted to keep working in the community, that I wanted to keep working with people. And so 
while the degree in comparative studies in race and ethnicity was a deep dive um, and sort of one angle, it did occur to me that there would be sort of relevant content that I would be able to carry forward in my career. And so at graduation, what was your first job after college? Directly after college, I went to work for the California Wellness Foundation. Uh, I had a role in evaluation, which was a great match for my skill set since I'd recently completed the master's in social psychology. So I had, you know, your your social science research skill set translates well to evaluation roles. Okay, but a moment ago, you mentioned that you didn't like psychology, because it was heavily about the research and that that's what you were going to be doing. And so now your first job, though, was about research. Yeah. So to clarify, I, I, ha- I had a misconception about what being a psychologist would be. <laughs> but then it turned out that I actually really loved the research side of it. <laughs> uh, okay, so then, all right, so then, so this role wasn't a complete mismatch in, uh, in that. No, regard. no, I, I love the research side. I love the evaluation side. Um, I, I just realized that I was not going to pursue that degree. And then uh, sit in an armchair with someone on a couch telling me about their feelings, that that's not actually the career path for that. <laughs> Got it. Got it. So now, how did you land the job at California Wellness Foundation? Do you remember? Well, I again, I had a, um, a pretty unique skill set um, for someone applying to entry-level jobs. But I also had experience at a foundation prior. So my junior year, I applied to an internship at a foundation um, through a program similar to, to Juma that connects students to careers where we are historically underrepresented. So I went out um, to New York for the summer and I worked at a foundation that was actually my first job in the nonprofit sector, even though it was on the foundation side. And then when I graduated, I applied to entry-level roles really in both direct service organizations and foundations. And I happened to luck out with this role at the California Wellness Foundation. But I also was able to leverage my network from my foundation internship, which again is another testament to the importance of these programs. If somebody's not that familiar with the whole nonprofit world, it sounds like what you're describing is two major roles, foundation and then direct services. Can you tell us a little bit about how the whole industry works and what function each of these play, how they're different? Yes. So um, at Juma, we are a direct service organization. And what does that mean? So we work directly with people. We are the ones on the front lines providing services. And so in our case, that means employing youth directly. Youth are on our payroll. We're running businesses where we are the youth's managers. And because we are able to be in that direct frontline position, we're able to really create a supportive work environment that really enables the young people to thrive. But how we are funded is a mix of earned revenue through our businesses as well as philanthropy. And philanthropy can come from individuals, but most of our philanthropy comes from corporate foundations as well as private foundations. Foundations are set up in all sorts of different ways. The ones that I've worked at have had an endowment and, you know, a board of directors and program officers who make decisions about grant making. Thank you for that. I think it's so important for people who are exploring a field to understand that there's all kinds of different ways that they can get involved and get engaged in that. 
oftentimes an early boss or an early mentor says something to us that really impacts us, impacts our perceptions of ourselves, impacts the way we think about the field we're in. Do you remember if there was anything that had been said to you or about you that shaped the trajectory of your career? When I was at the foundation, I got the advice that in order to be really successful in a career in philanthropy, and by successful, I mean having really great impact, you actually need to spend some time on the ground working in direct service organizations. The advice was that you really need to learn what it's like to apply for support and be denied in order to build up that empathy to be on the other side I and love to be that. making those decisions. Yep. Yeah. I would imagine too, as part of that is is also identifying for yourself which aspect of the field is actually a better fit for you. Because how would you even know whether you're a better fit for direct services or a better fit for foundation if you haven't actually experienced both? Exactly. I mean, I think one of the tenets in my life in general is that um, diverse perspectives are, are always helpful. And I always tried to pursue opportunities to put myself um, in other people's shoes and to understand how others are experiencing the world. And so definitely being on both sides has informed how I've been able to build my career and, and ultimately um, really have impact. I saw in getting ready for this interview, I saw that you actually started with Juma Ventures as a volunteer while you were doing this work at the California Wellness Foundation. Was that based on this piece of advice and wisdom that you had gotten? How did you end up starting as a volunteer? So it was precisely because of that advice that I had sought out Juma and and started volunteering. Um, even though I was employed full time at the foundation, I really wanted to start getting some more substantive experience at a direct service nonprofit. Um, I'd actually heard of Juma before that time, so when I was applying to that internship my junior year, I'd never written a cover letter before. So I reached out to a mentor asking her if she could share a copy of of her cover letter as a sample. And the cover letter that she sent to me was her own application to go work at Juma. So I think that the the name must have stuck in my mind. Um, A couple years later, I was at a networking event um, hosted by that same program for students of color that I mentioned. And I um, reconnected with some Juma staff at that point. Um, And that's when I started volunteering. Um, But I think what really stands out in my mind from that time is the first time that I walked into the Juma office. There was just so much energy. It was palpable. Um, You realize that you have this opportunity to work with a young person at such a pivotal time in their lives. They could go left. They could go right. And in most cases, they might end up taking a path that they had never even realized was possible before Juma. And so you just recognize that influence that you can have on real people and real lives. It's it's a really exciting time to be involved in a young person's life. Um, and it was, it's frankly a really exciting environment. And it's something that the staff are missing a lot during during this year. It's such a tough year. Such a tough year. After about three years, you left the California Wellness Foundation. Is that right? That's right. You went and got your MBA, right? Right. Why did you choose to go after an MBA as opposed to 
a master's in nonprofit work, so like a master's in nonprofit management. Mm-hmm. Why, why the MBA instead? As much as I was interested in the nonprofit sector, I thought at the time that if there was even a 5% chance I was going to want to do anything different in my career, um, that I wanted to keep my options open and the, the MBA would be more transferable to, to other sectors down the road. Oh, I, so I totally get what you're saying, that if you go for a master's in nonprofit management, it's unlikely that you could get considered for in a for-profit management type role. But the reverse isn't true. That's the assumption that I was making when I was 25. <laughs> and did it turn out? And did it well, turn out so to be it true turned, or not? It turns out that I've never even tried to leave the nonprofit sector. So um, it's untested so far. Okay. So, but you go to Stanford for an MBA, and Stanford is in my backyard. I live in Silicon Valley, and I see all of these Silicon Valley executives who have Stanford MBAs. So clearly, the dominant path, or at least the dominant story we hear about where somebody goes with a Stanford MBA is into high-tech entrepreneurship. Did you feel pressure to go that same route? The entrepreneurial culture is alive and well at Stanford Business School, but I never personally felt pressure to go the entrepreneurial route. Um, I think it was my time at California Wellness where every week I would see hundreds of organizations, hundreds of models for how to create change. And I was really interested in pursuing my MBA and then finding one of those models that I could contribute to, to make better, to make more effective, um, make more efficient. And at no point did I have the feeling that I had this big idea that no one else had ever come up with. I was pretty sure that my model that I wanted to contribute to was out there somewhere. As we're going through your story, one thing that I'm noticing is that peer pressure doesn't seem to sway you. I think there's so many opportunities where this type of peer pressure could really sway somebody. And you seem to be strong enough in your convictions and knowing who you are that you're not swayed by that. Is there a mantra you have? Is there something you tell yourself? Is there something you know about where that strength comes from? Like, help me understand that strength that you have to resist peer pressure. You know, it's funny because I don't even know that I think about it that way. I have had an identity of being different from such an early age that it's never even occurred to me um, to try to fit in with those around me. I remember being really, really little, you know, five, six years old and sitting in my grandparents' living room watching TV. Um, my, My grandparents are white. And realizing it just hit me that they have no idea what it's like to be watching this TV and never see someone that looks like them. So from day one in my family, I felt different. So I don't think I ever really felt a need to fit in. That's so powerful that your reaction to it was to say, this is who I am and I don't need to bend to fit in. So- Thank you for sharing that. It's super powerful. Uh, While you were getting your MBA, you also were working, which is also uncommon for people 
getting an MBA at Stanford. Tell me, tell me about, about that. Why was it important to you to be working while getting your MBA? So nearly all MBAs, I think, have summer internship. Mine was through a program called Education Pioneers, another career program that uh, connected graduate students with careers in education. Um, But I also worked as a consultant for the Ford Foundation throughout my MBA, and that is very rare. But I was one of two people in my class who both came from a nonprofit and planned to go back to a nonprofit, and MBAs are very, very expensive. So I realized that I actually needed to make as much money as I could. (laughs) So through some former colleagues, I got in touch with some staff at the Ford Foundation who were able to offer me um, project contracts on winter breaks and spring breaks. And basically any free time I had, I, I would do small projects to try to earn some extra cash. You've mentioned a few times that there were programs that you took advantage of, of connecting youth to, to opportunities. How did you find those? How did you know that those programs existed? Uh, and what advice would you have for people who want to find those same types of programs? I think I first heard of the programs that I had participated in Um, because they had just advertised on campus, or maybe I got an email. Um, But part of it, too, is that I love to explore every opportunity. I'm also a compulsive yes-sayer. So, you know, someone says, do you want to go check out this program? Sure. Um, And so I, I, I was also primed and predisposed to figure out any and all opportunities out there that could support me in and what I was trying to do because I'd had some early experiences taking advantage of um, participating in um, programs, I, I knew that they could have a lot to offer. What was your first job after getting the MBA? Did you stay with Ford Foundation or... So I did actually continue to do some project work for Ford Foundation, um, but I also started with a nonprofit called Sweat Equity Enterprises. They were um, exploring an earned income model. It was a startup, um, tiny. There were two full-time staff and two consultants, including myself. What's an earned income model? The earned income model was that um, the program delivery and earning the fees were one and the same. Got it. How did you find that opportunity and what motivated you to to join um, Sweat Equity Enterprises? I actually heard of the startup through my Education Pioneers Network. And in addition to being interested in earned income models, and, you know, part of part of it was that it was a startup and I was coming out of Stanford and you sort of feel like you've got to give a startup a chance. Uh, but it was also so even though it wasn't necessarily a high tech startup, you're like, okay, look, I'm still doing, right. I'm still doing startup. I've I'm got still to try doing that something thing. small. <laughs> um, but it was also, frankly, um, the recession, and and so there were limited opportunities. It was crazy graduating in the summer of 2009, and so it it was a great fit for my interests. But I pretty quickly realized that the idea um, didn't really have legs, um, and so I, I moved on from that opportunity fairly quickly. You mentioned earlier that one of the big kind of skills or attributes you need as a CEO of a of a nonprofit is empathy. And I would imagine that starting your career in the middle of a, a recession or your post MBA career in the middle of a recession 
probably gives you a fair amount of empathy for what people are experiencing right now who are trying to start their career in the middle of a pandemic. Do you find yourself drawing on that experience at all in the current state of what of what's happening um, today? Absolutely. I mean, I in general, I'm constantly thinking about how other people are feeling and and what they might be experiencing. But I'm I'm have often thought um, through this, if I were in their shoes, whether it be graduating from high school, whether it be graduating from college, um, in the middle of an MBA program, how would I be feeling at this time? What would I be missing out on? I mentioned that 2009 was a crazy year to graduate. You know, normally when you graduate from Stanford Business School, 100% of the graduates have job offers lined up. People's job offers were being rescinded. Companies were closing left and right. It was a pretty crazy time. And I have imagined that it is quite similar to how things are now, with the difference that I could hit the street and go find an opportunity. That's more difficult right now. Um, you can't sort of go out there and network and create opportunities um, the way that I was able to in 2009. Especially if we add to it what you shared before about that people need to learn how to advocate for themselves. So now you've got people who don't really have yet the skills to advocate for themselves, and they can't go out and just pound the pavement and meet people face to face. Together, that makes it a, a pretty difficult and scary environment to be getting started right right now. Definitely. You mentioned that you left Sweat Equity Enterprises after just uh, a short amount of time. I think it was about about nine months. Did you worry at all about having a short stint on your resume? I know some people, especially early in their career, even that first job, worry that that's going to brand them somehow in a negative light. How did you process that? You know, I, I don't recall being particularly worried about that because I was operating under with the backdrop of both the recession and taking a chance on a startup. I also didn't leave that startup until I had landed my new job with Local Initiative Support Corporation, um, which is a very well-known, well-respected entity. So I was not particularly concerned about having that short stint prior. How did you land that next opportunity? I'm pretty sure that I networked my way to that job as well. Um, but I also remember that that role had such a unique um set of responsibilities that almost seemed designed for me. So half of the role was managing a program for youth aging out of foster care. So again, sort of like the empathy program side, the direct service side. And then half of the role was managing the finance and the operations for the New York City program, which my MBA um, came in handy for. How long did you stay in this role and why did you end up leaving it? I ended up only staying a year, another short stint, but that one was more motivated by the fact that I was tired of living in New York City. So in the winter of 2011, I decided that I'd had enough with New York. I was way too cold. And I got in touch with Juma's former CEO and let him know that I was thinking about coming back to California. And he replied almost immediately that he had a job for me. So I actually had a trip planned for President's Day weekend that year um, to visit some friends. I took the flight out to San Francisco, and I just never took the flight back. 
What was it about this role that made it such a great match for you? Juma has a very unique culture that I'd always been drawn to. And it was a place where I felt like I could really grow and thrive. Part of the role that we were discussing was to really help as Juma embarked on a, a you know, pretty aggressive geographic expansion phase. And so personally, I was going to be able to grow. And quite literally, I was going to be able to help the organization grow as well. Do you remember if there was anything that you were doing when you were volunteering in the organization that created the kind of memory that this executive had of of you? So I think I've I've always made it easy for my supervisors um, to really appreciate my work ethic. I've always been very reliable. And so I was a volunteer, but I was coming in almost every day during lunch and after work um, to help out, whether it be um, applying for funding or organizing meetings, um, helping to design programming. I think that I was, I probably just proved myself very dedicated and very reliable. Um, and that, I'm guessing, stuck out. When you think about some of the volunteers that work with you, do you see most people leveraging the opportunity the way that you're describing? Or do you see a lot of people kind of missing what they could take away from or impact they can make as a, as a volunteer, even in their own careers? So I was pretty unique in that I was a volunteer, but I was essentially fulfilling a staff role. Um, I think a lot of volunteers that come to Juma these days are looking for one-day experiences or are looking to mentor one young person, which is an amazing contribution, but it's a little less core. Um, but part of that, again, was what I was driven by was really wanting to experience the day-to-day -day operations of a direct service nonprofit. And so I endeavored to put myself in that position where I really wanted to understand what it was like to be a staff person, even though I was technically still a volunteer. I would imagine some people who are stepping into a role as a volunteer and doing responsibilities that feel like a staff position actually could get a little resentful and say, wait, this is a staff position. I should be paid. I shouldn't be a volunteer. Was that anything that had crossed your mind? And again, how did you, how did you reconcile that disparity of it being a staff position, but essentially doing it as a volunteer? I definitely was never resentful at all. I mean, I was so excited to just have the opportunity to learn and to get exposure to the organization. So yeah, it never occurred to me that that, that was something to be resentful for. So you started with Juma in 2011? 2011. 2011. We are now just coming to the end of 2020. So it's just nine years later. And you've gone from that role in business development to now becoming CEO. So you've really risen in the organization. How did you make that happen? Can you tell me some stories of these different promotions that led you to keep getting increasing responsibility, increasing scope, and now essentially to becoming CEO? So before I actually joined Juma full-time in the spring of 2011, I actually had come on as the interim COO. And so from sort of day one, I was um, exposed to the, the general finance and operations of the organization. But we knew that my permanent role was going to be managing director of programs. 
And so that's the role that I took on um, that spring. And as I mentioned, we were at the beginning of a geographic expansion phase. My very first day on the job was actually in San Diego helping to set up programs in that site. And so as um, as our programs grew, as we grew to more cities and the site directors of those new cities reported to me, um, my role grew to chief program officer. And then a couple years later, when the role of COO opened up, as I had already done that job, and now at this point I was already overseeing about half the organization on the program side, um, it made sense for me to step into the COO role. I had the opportunity to apply um, to become the CEO in 2017, and that was probably, well, not probably, that was by far the biggest jump, in part just because of the responsibility um, of the role, um, but also because I just had my second son. I'd only been back to work full-time for a couple of weeks when I had to make the decision about whether or not I could step in and take this responsibility, having an eight-month-old and a two-year-old at home. What made you decide to say, yes, you could? I was and I am obsessed with Juma. Um, And so part of me always knew that if this opportunity ever came up, there's no way that I could say no. I really wanted to do everything I could to make sure that Juma was strong and that Juma succeeded. I also knew that if I said no there's going to be a high chance that I would regret that down the road. Whereas if I said yes, and I and I gave it a good try, at the very least, I would learn something. I'm hesitating asking you this next question because I have to be honest with myself and say I don't know that I would ask this of a man. And I don't necessarily like the idea that I'm going to ask you a, a question that's based on being a mother that I wouldn't ask somebody who's a father, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Did you have to put in place for yourself any type of support structure because you had the two young children to allow you to step into the role of CEO? Yes. Uh, The support structure was essential. So my husband and I um, are both from Southern California. Our families are down there. So we don't have any local family that was able to, to help out. And my husband's role is also very demanding. So he also has a lot of evening work, which I do, um, you know, being in a nonprofit and a lot of travel, which I also have. And so it was essential that we had help at home. When that first year when I took on the CEO role and I had, you know, an under one-year-old and a two-year-old, We had the two-year-old in full-time daycare, plus we had another 15 to 20 hours a week of help at home, plus we had a full-time nanny. So we had probably 60 hours a week of childcare help um, just, just to keep it together and moving. But one of the things that I, one of the ways that I sort of rationalized it at the time and looking back, it was absolutely the right decision is that doesn't, that period does not last forever. That's what we needed to get through about a year of transition of me in a new role and the kids as young as they were. But, you know, now, now we just have some part-time help and, and eventually maybe one day um, we'll be, my husband and I will be able to, to hold down the fort on our own. But if you can, if you can afford and if you're privileged enough to be able to get that support. Um, It definitely made all the difference at a critical point in my career. 
such an important point you're making about the fact that that's not it's that's not the forever piece. Another question for you about the rising in, in roles at, at Juma. Sometimes people think that getting promoted is because they've done really good work and have the work stand on their own. And you even mentioned that some of when you were volunteering, having the work speak for itself. So some people believe that doing good work is what leads to get getting promoted. Some people believe it's about having an advocate or having a sponsor. Um, some of it say that it's about advocating for yourself. Based on your experiences, what would you say of those, which of those contributed the most to your getting promoted and what advice would you give others as a result? I think it was probably all of the above. So my predecessor definitely created opportunities for me and saw my potential. At the same time, I'd like to think that I was pretty easy to support. I always did a really good job. I was always very reliable, very responsible. And when, you know, when it came to moving into the CEO role, I really did have to advocate for myself. I ended up auditioning for that role for about five months. And I think one of the things that um, I had to overcome, having come from the COO role, was this impression that I wasn't going to have a vision for my role as CEO. Um, and so it it took a while for me to really convince the board that that I had a vision and that I could lead with vision and that I um, could be exciting enough um, to lead the organization. Sometimes that could be one of the challenges that we have of growing up inside of an organization is that people have these preconceived ideas about us that we then have to recalibrate. And so I think that's a powerful story you just shared of five months of actively working to recalibrate this perception that you weren't, wouldn't have a vision to be able to say, no, I actually, I actually would. So you have this deep expertise in nonprofits, and I'd love to ask you just a few questions about nonprofits in general, which is, do you think there's a certain type of person that's best suited to the work of nonprofit and any thoughts on the flip side, too, of who should avoid this space? Well, I think I've mentioned this before, but there's definitely a lot of interpersonal dynamics in nonprofit work. So I do think it's important that uh, people going into nonprofits have a knack for understanding people, you know, have high emotional intelligence. Again, there's there's a lot of passion in the work, which can make it so exciting. But it also, you know, creates its its own unique um, management challenges. I know some people have that kind of interest and they can say, I, I've got that. I've got the emotional intelligence. I've got the empathy. I love people. But I'm also graduating from college with a lot of debt. And debt makes it hard because how can I go into, into nonprofit? What advice would you have for somebody who's in that position where they're really trying to struggle with the debt? I am so glad you asked this question because I actually think that it's one of the biggest issues that our sector faces in really um, progressing social change. So I believe that the best leaders have proximity to the communities that they're serving, whether they experience the same things as the, the people they're serving or they're from the same neighborhoods, from the same communities. What that means, though, is if you're coming from a low-income community – and you might be the first person in your family to go to college, you might be in the position 
to break that cycle of poverty. But that's going to be much less likely if you go to work for a nonprofit. Sector-wide, I think that it's an issue with our salaries and how our work is valued. Individually, I don't begrudge any person who's worried about student loans, who goes to work at a for-profit to pay off those loans, and then eventually comes back to the nonprofit sector, and I see that a lot. I was only able to go directly to a career in nonprofits because I was in the very privileged position that my grandfather actually paid for college. And I see stories similar to mine uh, with nonprofit leaders a lot. And I think that's a problem. You, I'm sure, interview quite a few people and have interviewed people over the years. When you've had people who are coming from a for-profit job and are transitioning in, what do you see as the most effective ways to make the case or convince somebody like you who's a hiring manager that I'm the right person to make this shift coming out of for-profit and into nonprofit? So the number one thing that I look for is self-awareness, number one. Um, For entry-level roles, that could be asking someone about a time they'd made a mistake and how they felt once they realized they'd made a mistake and what they did about it. And literally all I'm looking for is for them to admit that they made a mistake. (laughs) And it's an extra bonus if they can um, identify the feeling that they had at the same time. So I'm looking for self-awareness. I'm also looking for familiarity with nonprofit culture to appreciate that people are there for very personal reasons, and that should affect how you work with your team. And then, of course, it's always um, an extra bonus if you've put in some work to to get to know an organization, whether it be Juma or or you just have a record of volunteering and you can show that you can you know, move beyond yourself and, and dedicate um, some, some of your extra time to causes um, beyond yourself. So self-awareness is probably the perfect transition into my final four questions. So these are questions I ask everybody. I call it the lightning round. And my first question for you is, what would you say is the smartest career move you made, whether intentionally or accidentally? Going to Stanford for business school was definitely the smartest move. Um, it's opened up a network that I wouldn't have otherwise had access to, and it gives me a lot of credibility. If you could have one do-over, what would it be and why? I wish I had been more intentional about preparing for the CEO role before I had the opportunity. Um, I used to do a lot of informational interviews, and I used to spend a lot of time on my own professional development. But in those few years when I was COO and having children, anything that was not a day of priority got deprioritized. And so in retrospect, I had a lot of hard lessons learned in that first year that I could have gotten some perspective on before then. What's one piece of career advice that you wish you could go back in time and give to the young Adrian? I have struggled with imposter syndrome, this feeling that I didn't belong or that I wasn't good enough to be in the role that I was in. And I wish I could go back to my younger self and share some confidence and some reassurance that it was all going to work out. I'm so happy that you shared that as your answer to this particular question. Just going back to what we were talking about before of the 
kind of conviction that you have to resist peer pressure, that it could be easy to look at somebody like you and assume that that means that you don't suffer from imposter syndrome and to recognize as you just have, that those two things might coexist, that that confidence and that conviction can coexist with imposter syndrome, unfortunately. I don't mean to say that like that's a good thing. Um, And my final question for you, how do you define success for yourself? On a daily basis, I want to positively impact people. I want everything I do to have a positive impact and, and to do more good than harm. Um, And sometimes I think about this question from the perspective of what would I want people to say about me at my funeral? And I want people to say that I was a good person. Well, I think this podcast is, is yet another way that you will be getting out there and impacting people and having some real positive influence and Um, and being that good person. So thank you so much for spending this time with with me today. I've really enjoyed hearing your story and getting to know you. Um, So thank you. And I look forward to hearing what Juma Ventures is doing when we're on the other side of this pandemic. We'll see you at a Giants game. (laughs) Oh, I love that. Okay, I'm going to have my hot chocolate. (laughs) Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Before we sign off, I'd like to share a few more things. If you're interested in getting involved or donating to Juma Ventures, visit juma.org. We've placed a link on our website, careercurves.com. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. We've made it easy to do both of these. Simply visit careercurves.com and look for the review and subscribe links along the top. Finally, please tell your friends, family, and everyone else you know about the Career Curves podcast. If you share on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, or Instagram, be sure to tag us. You have no idea how happy this makes us. That's it for this episode. As always, thanks for listening.